You're not going to wait till the new year for a resolution after eating all that turkey? I'm back on a re- resolved diet after all that fanfare, all those calories. Unbelievable how much I ate last week. Uh, we have much to be thankful for, and um, I hope you enjoyed thanking the Father for all of his blessings to us. And as those of you who are American citizens and have received a, a legacy that sometimes we vastly underestimate, I hope you were especially thankful. That was by his providence. And uh, we have to say, you know, we didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, it was just handed to us. But we hope that our great-grandchildren will say that we did have something to do with it and that they're the recipients of a legacy of freedom. Well, let's look back in that good old book of Galatians, this book that Paul writes very passionately. Uh, you won't find, I think, any book in the Bible that is written more passionately than this one. And there's a reason for it. If you turn to chapter 2, we'll be looking at it, especially in verses 15 and 16. We've read these verses before, but we want to take a whole Thursday morning to unpack these two verses because they, they really take us to the core of what Galatians is about. Here's the reason Galatians is so important. I don't know if it's a male thing. I think probably we manifest this more strongly than the females. I think, But I think it's a human thing. If, if you think about it, all of us have uh, this inner urge constantly to be right. And our wives will say about us, you just have to be right. So I, I think maybe it is dominantly a male thing, but it's, it's, a, it's a human thing. We, and the reason we have this urge is because we were made right. You know, there were a few moments when Adam could actually say, I am right. <laughs> Before the fall, he was right, and he knew it. Eve was right, and she knew it. And they enjoyed being right all the time. They were both right all the time as a married couple and never had conflict until they fell. And what happened when they fell fell is that they lost their rightness. Neither one of them was right anymore. But both of them remembered being right. And both of them knew that they were supposed to be right. And as the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve now, for all these generations, we've still remembered being right. And we look in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and we were right. And we can even look to the future, of course, as Christians, and we know we'll be right. And we're not right now. And how do we deal with this? It's a far deeper trauma than most people realize. It affects so much of what they do and they're not even aware of it that most of everything that we do is an attempt to be right. We've been left with a conscience of right and wrong. So although our conscience is not perfect, we we know something about what is right. And we usually have a lot to say about what was right in somebody else's life, especially if it's of the other political party. We have a lot to say about what's wrong with that other party or what's Right with our party. The reason we get so fired up during football season, I really think down deep inside, if I can theologize and psychoanalyze for just a moment, (laughs) don't take this personally. Well, yeah, take it personally. I think what is down underneath all this football uh, partisanship is that we all want to be part of a group that's right, that we know how to do it. 
that we're the champions. And I want to be identified with that. And so go for my team. And to heck with all the rest of you. I want to be right. If you look at most of everything we do, we want to be right. Even the files you keep. Think about it. The emails you keep are often so that three years from now you can prove you were right. Now, I know some of this has, you know, legitimate legal implications and you have to keep proper files to prove that you were right. But about 80% of that has nothing to do with legality. It has to do with your pride. And you want to prove you're right. I'm sometimes amazed at these political commentators who can recite sentences from some obscure politician's speech four years ago. And they just pull them out and they remember them. Why? Because they, they nailed that one. I'm going to remember that. And I'm going to prove I was right. It's unbelievable how we're motivated in such a way. There's a corollary to this. And that is because we want to prove ourselves right down deep inside, down deep inside, we also continually struggle with a sense of failure and guilt. I remember the first time I read the the great psychiatrist, uh, uh, Tournier, Paul Tournier, his book on guilt and grace. I, I wouldn't agree with everything he said. He's a universalist, for example. I certainly don't agree with all of his perspectives, but he's roughly within the Christian uh, tradition. And Turnier, as a psychiatrist, having interviewed uh, people who were suffering with abnormal psychology as well as what we'd call normal psychology, having interviewed decades of people, he basically shows clearly how most everything we do is motivated by guilt. You can take almost anything you do and you'll find a huge portion of the motivation is guilt. You know, my neighbor is sick. I take a cake over. Why? Well, she brought me a cake last year. And I need to even the score. I need to make it right. And so much of what we do is motivated this way. If you're you're ever interested, you might look at that book, Guilt and Grace by Paul Tournier, T-O-U-R-N-I-E-R, Tournier. It plagues the human condition ever since the fall. Uh, There's a famous psychiatrist out in the Midwest uh, who one time said that he could empty... 75% of his psychiatric ward inpatient beds if he could convince his clients of one thing, your sins are forgiven. It's amazing how much weird psychiatry comes out of people not knowing how to have their sins forgiven. So it should come as no big shock to us who in our own generation experience the struggles of wanting and trying to be right and the struggle of trying to assuage a guilty conscience. When we look at the Apostle Paul in the first century, 20 centuries ago, who is profoundly exercised over some people who are tampering with the Christian message in such a way that it will disable us from dealing with this issue of guilt and will disable us from finding the answer to being right. Because we desperately need that answer. If you want to live a healthy life, a psychologically healthy life and a relationally healthy life and a communally healthy life, you've got to get an answer to this. How can I be right? And how can I assuage the ravages of this guilty conscience that plagues us all? That's the reason Paul says 
such things as if as this if someone else even an angel from heaven comes to you and preaches another gospel other than the one i preached to you may he be anathema that is may he be cursed and he says let those who are talking about circumcision as necessary for salvation let them just mutilate themselves why don't they just cut it off instead of circumcising it that's basically what he's saying and so you don't get this kind of language throughout the Bible very often, do you? It's because Paul knows that he's dealing with a fundamental human condition that the gospel is supposed to solve. And you cannot tamper with the gospel or you will not solve this human condition. And of course, ultimately, you, you, can, you can lead to leading people astray so that they ultimately are not right even before the throne of God in the final judgment if you're not very careful with the gospel. So that's the reason we get all this energy. Now, what I'd like for us to do is read these two verses and then look at the underlying premise behind the text so that we, we, we get a theological framework and backdrop for this text and see, see why Paul is speaking of it. But let's look at verses 15, 16. And Paul has just, remember, Paul has just confronted Peter Because Peter, who had been a a proclaimer of the gospel to the Gentiles, when he sees a group from Jerusalem coming who are Judaistic Christians, Judaizers, who are saying that you have to be circumcised in addition to believing in Jesus Christ, when they come to Antioch, Peter withdraws from the Gentiles. And he'll only eat with the Jews, which was, of course, Jewish custom. You don't eat with Gentiles. And he was abiding by Jewish customs. And Paul takes out after him, remember? Because we saw how the gospel of justification alone will unify the church and break down the walls of hostility and put people at the same table together. So Paul has already confronted Peter on that. Now he's going to go now to the core of the problem. The problem was initially a social problem. Peter was withdrawing himself from a group because of his religious convictions or somebody else's religious convictions actually because they called Peter a hypocrite. Peter didn't really believe what they believed. He just didn't want to be scorned by them. So he cooperated with their behavior. But now Paul goes beyond the social issue, implication of the gospel, and he gets to the root of the theology of it. Let's look at it in verse 15. He says, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now let's look at the underlying premise of the text. It's this. Everyone must be justified before God. That's the problem. Everyone must be justified before God. We spend most of our time justifying justifying ourselves in front of other people because down deep inside we want to justify ourselves to ourselves, which is called self-righteousness. We want to be righteous in our own eyes. Therefore, I'm defending myself in front of you. And, you know, I remember being told as a kid one time, Wilson, you'd argue with a fence post. I would in defending myself. And that's how strongly ourselves want to be justified in our own eyes. But what Paul, the underlying assumption is, the real issue is, do you believe that if there is a God, that this God considers you right? Because that's your biggest problem. If there is a God, that's your problem. 
If there is a God, then there's no problem. And that's the reason I think people would prefer to say there's no God. And they spend a lot of time trying to disprove God. Look at all the books that have come out in the past three years trying to disprove God. You want to know where that's coming from? I got to be right. And if he exists, I'm not right. I'm going to get rid of him. That's how strong this motivation is. But if you grant there's a God, here's your problem. You got to be right with him because we know that we stand under his judgment. Of course, we know from the scriptures there's a big judgment day coming. I've got to be right. Now look at A underneath this. We were created righteous. That's, where our, that's sort of where our DNA memory comes from. We were made to be right. We weren't made to be wrong. We weren't made to have to deal with this. We were supposed to be able to live life and be right all the time. <laughs> so that's the way we were created. But B... We have lost our righteousness through the fall. Now, why do I say this? Because, well, Paul says it elsewhere, doesn't he? That we are by nature, this is Ephesians 2, we are by nature children of wrath. Yikes, there's your description. You are by nature wrong, not right. So you're, you're conceived, before you're ever born, you were conceived wrong. How do you like that? So your wife is correct. <laughs> she's right. You're wrong. <laughs> and you would be right. She's wrong. We were born that way. And because of that, the biggest problem we can imagine was our problem. We were under the wrath of God. We we're children of wrath. What a description. And then, of course, Isaiah says in Isaiah 48, 22, we have the wicked have no peace with God. We're brought into this world. We don't have peace. We are wrong. We're under His wrath. And Hebrews 10, 27 says that the terrifying judgment of God awaits every man. So it is for men once to die and then to face the judgment. That's the big problem since the fall, that we lost our righteousness through the fall. But then see, this is what the gospel promises. We can regain our righteousness our rightness through the gospel. Paul says, and we'll be looking at this text in a moment in Romans 3, but now a righteousness, a justification, apart from law-keeping, has been made known by God. It's now revealed by Him. There is another way to get righteousness. And this is the righteousness of the gospel. We can be right. And we can enjoy the benefits of being right. And I'm going to suggest to you, not just in heaven, not just in the new heavens and the new earth, but right now, you can enjoy at least some of the benefits of being right and have your guilty conscience assuaged by the gospel now. Now, let's dig into the text. First of all, you'll see that there's kind of a sandwich here. Verses 15, 16a, and then 16c teach us that no one will be justified by works of the law. No one will be justified by works of the law. He says, we Jews even know that a man is not made right or justified by observing the law. Technically, it would be by works of the law. That's a technical term, works of the law. And that's the reason I put it in your outline. Now, Let's talk about this word justified for just a moment. This is extremely important, and it can get very confusing. 
the word justified comes from the same word as the word righteous. So let's put it this way. The noun is righteousness. The adjective is righteous. The verb is to be justified or to justify. It depends on whether you're the one being declared right or you're declaring someone else right. Once again, the noun is righteousness. That's what you want is righteousness. The adjective is righteous. You want to be a righteous man. The verb is justify. It's the same word, dikao in, in Greek. Different forms of that word that make it either a noun or an adjective or a verb. So, the very word justification means to have righteousness. And this can get confusing. Now, I'm, there, there are big debates about this among Protestants right now. I'm going to go ahead and make a statement and not take the time to prove it because it would take this amen lesson and the next two to do it because of all the questions that are being raised. But historically, among Catholics and Protestants, that it would be the Western tradition, and I would say even the Eastern Christian tradition, righteousness basically means to be right according to the law of God. It means to conform to a moral standard. That's what righteousness means. It means rightness. Now, that may sound like a well-duh, but here is the contemporary problem. I don't know how many of you have run into the theological movement called New Perspectives on Paul. Would you just raise your hand? New Perspectives? Or just Okay, very few of you. There is a movement that is increasingly popular among Protestants, I would say even evangelical Protestants, called New Perspectives. And at the risk of being simplistic, and, and I... If I were in an academic environment and if the new perspective people were here, I would take a lot longer because uh, they don't like to be categorized. And one of the leaders of the group, N.T. Wright, from whom I have benefited immensely, uh, uh, doesn't like to be criticized. And so I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to. Uh, and I'm sure I won't catch all the nuances. I'm just going to tell you the way it looks to me. And I, I'm, we're dealing with some things that go over my head. Uh, the, the nuances are sometimes very complex and hard to catch. So I try to read people on both sides. And right now there's an immense debate between Dr. John Piper uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Dr. N.T. Wright, who is the New Perspectives uh, advocate. He's a, an Anglican bishop and, and would be considered certainly a conservative among Anglicans. And as I say, he's written so many very helpful thing, uh, things. The, the New Testament and the people of God... Uh, Jesus and the Victory of God and many other books he's written that I've, I've benefit, benefited from immensely. And I don't think anyone now in graduate level New Testament work can do that work without considering N.T. Wright. He is a foundational scholar of our day. Here's what I think he's saying. Uh, and, and this would be what I think Piper thinks he's saying. The new perspectives is, is this, that... Whereas we think of Paul as battling an issue of Judaizers who believed that you went to heaven by your works, and in this case, circumcision. The New Perspectives folks are saying that's not really what Paul was dealing with because they claim that in first century Judaism, 
The, the Jews believed in salvation by grace. What they say the real problem was is that Jews believed that only Jews could be saved by the grace of God. So it was a covenantal communal thing. And furthermore, the reason circumcision was the issue was that it was the badge or the insignia of being in the community. And what Paul is saying is that's not the badge. The badge is faith. Now, this may sound like subtle uh, distinction without a difference, but I believe it makes a big difference. Because then N.T. Wright goes on to say that what the righteousness of God is in this text or in Romans 3 is not being right. The righteousness of God is His faithfulness to His covenant to save His people. And therefore, for us, righteousness is simply being faithful to the covenant. Furthermore, the New Perspectives people say that justification largely deals with future judgment. And what it means to have justification now is simply to know by faith that then you will be justified. That your justification really doesn't involve present realities. It involves future realities that you believe in. And therefore, you experience future justification by faith. Now, I don't think that's what the text... I think Wright and the New Perspectives people have some great insights about the meaning of the covenant because here, Paul obviously is talking about Jew and Gentile. He's obviously talking about children of Abraham. We'll get into that later. So what I would say is that the covenantal belongingness, the social community that righteousness creates is an effect of God's righteousness. It's not the essence of His righteousness. The essence of His righteousness is that He is right. He is morally right. He is good. He is perfect. And I believe that we can show that because, for example, if you'll look in chapter 3 of Galatians, look how Paul contrasts righteousness with a curse. He says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law. This is 3.10. Because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So you see the contrast between righteousness is a curse. Let me give you another example. I'm going to give you a couple of them so you can see the essence of the righteousness we're talking about. And this is important for the relief of your guilt conscience. We're not just going through a bunch of complexities so that we can enter some theological atmosphere out there and be able to talk about it. We're talking about the assurance that you will have that your guilty conscience is, uh, is made right. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25. You say, what does that have to do with the New Testament? It has a lot to do with the New Testament. Deuteronomy 25, and here you'll have the Hebrew word for righteousness being used. The word which is translated dikao in the Greek. So it's the same concept. Paul obviously was, if anything, a student of the Old Testament. Look how Moses speaks of it, this, this idea of righteousness. And this is on a human level, but it's the same concept. 
20, uh, this is page 287 on the Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible. Deuteronomy 25.1, when men have a dispute, they are to take it to court and the judges will decide the case. Look at this now. Acquitting, there's the word righteous, or justifying. Acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. Do you see how tzaddik in, in Hebrew is used here? This word for righteous or justifying or declaring right? It is a declaration of acquittal for a person. That's righteousness. That's being justified. It's being declared innocent. And look at its contrast. The contrast is to be declared guilty, to be condemned, just as in court. People are acquitted or convicted, acquitted or condemned. Now, turn over to Romans 8. This will be on page 1822. And look at the same sort of contrast. Paul says in Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no, what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the justification that he's been talking about in chapters 3, 4, and 5 especially, he says, okay, let's summarize this. Therefore, nobody's damned who's in Christ. So what justification does, it solves damning. It solves condemning. It's the opposite of condemning. It's acquitting. Look also in Romans 8, just turn the page, and look at verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who what? Justifies. That is, if God declares that you're innocent, what knucklehead is going to try to condemn you? You have to be a total idiot when the judge of all the earth has declared you innocent. You don't listen to anybody declaring you guilty. So look at verse 34. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Therefore, he goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of God? Because the condemnation's gone. And you're acquitted, which means you're declared innocent. Now, back to Galatians 2. That's just dealing with one word that comes under massive controversy. And look, if N.T. Wright were here, he would give a very scholarly, clever, and entertaining lecture and cite some verses in the Bible that show in the Old Testament that God is righteous. He's, he's said to be righteous because He's faithful to His people. And Wright would say, that's His righteousness because He's faithful to His people. But what I want to say is, yes... But he's faithful to his people in his righteousness because righteousness is being right and being right is keeping your promises. And he made promises to his people. So we're not denying the covenantal social implications of justification. We had those last week when we talked about the the two Jews and Gentiles coming together. Of course it's an effect of his righteousness. But it's not the essence of his righteousness. The essence of his righteousness is being right. And the essence of your righteousness is being right. 
And an effect of being right is to be in the church of God, to be among the people of God and to be sons of Abraham. We'll get to that later. That's an effect of being right. So they're both included in God's redemption. But we must deal specifically with condemnation and acquittal because that's what's driving your guilt conscience and your misbehavior and poor relationships and depression and all kinds of things. So let's be sure that we target what Paul's targeting here. And he says, he says in verse uh, 16, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, A, notice that this includes religious people. Backing up to verse 15, we who are Jews, we know this. What Paul is saying is there is no more sophisticated godly religion on the face of the earth until Christ came at Pentecost and gave us the New Testament church. There is no more sophisticated religion. It's not the, it's not the kernel, it's the husk, but it's a glorious husk. And he says, even we Jews who are Christians, we have come to know this, that being good Jews does not justify us. Now that was news to Jews. And it's news to a lot of Protestants and Catholics that just because you stand in a garage, that doesn't make you a car. And just because you put Chevrolet on your forehead, that doesn't make you a car. you got to be a car. And just because your grandmother was a wonderful Christian woman doesn't make you a Christian and has nothing to do with your justification except God's grace in letting you have a godly grandmother so that maybe you'll learn something about the gospel. And maybe you too will be a godly person. And your grandmother was right. Maybe you'll be right. But you must be right. You must believe. And the Jews came to understand this, that their customs and traditions, their circumcision was not going to save them. Their meticulous, scrupulous conformity to 613 laws in the Old Testament would not Grant them eternal life. And right now, is it not true, brothers, that you and I have many friends who are more honest than some of our Christian friends and more honest than ourselves sometimes, and they're not Christians? And you say, boy, if I'm going to heaven, surely he would too. You just made a huge, you just revealed a huge misunderstanding of why you would be going to heaven in the first place. You are not going to heaven because you're honest. You're going to heaven because God has provided for you a righteousness that is beyond your own performance. That's what we're going to get to. And that's what the Jews had to understand. And it was like life transforming. It was paradigm shifting. It was obnoxious to everything their mama had taught. And Paul is saying everything in this world would try to take you back where you came from, take you right back to Egypt. And you can hear the gospel 40 times and everything in this world wants you to go back to Egypt and be in slavery again. And Paul's fighting that battle right here. The Judaizers want them to go back to Egypt. And Paul will not go. And I don't want you to go either. Because no matter how religious you are, you cannot be justified by conformity to certain regulations. Martin Luther put it this way. I mentioned this, I think, to our Sunday morning crowd a few weeks ago. He said there's a a white devil and a black devil, and that had nothing to do with race. He said, here's the black devil. He said, the black devil will try to get you to do things 
contrary to the law of God. Eat, drink, and be merry. Go have relationships with whatever woman you want to. Get drunk till the wee hours of the morning. Just skim by. Don't worry about anybody else. Take care of yourself. That's the black devil. He said, here's the white devil. The white devil is the one who tries to tell you that you're really pretty good. And that because you're pretty good, you're right. And that you're okay with God. And he takes real pleasure in your good works. And that because of that, you're going to be fine. He said they're both devils. And Luther put it this way. We must not only repent of our unrighteousness. We must repent of our righteousness. Because he said, as Isaiah says, or God says through Isaiah, your righteousness is what? As filthy rags. So you have no righteousness on your own. You cannot acquire it through your performance or your affiliations. You can't get it. That's the big point Paul makes in Romans 1, verse 20 through 3.20. You can't get there from here, whether you're an upstanding Gentile, an upstanding moral philosopher, or a Jew. Someone who's been in the church. You can't get it that way. And he's saying it doesn't matter if you're a religious person when it comes to righteousness. Now, probably being a religious person is a little better than not being a religious person. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder. But I suppose, I mean, well, I'll take my my own case. I I was better off growing up in the church. As soon as I could get away from it, I got away from it. But certain seeds were planted. So I'm grateful for that. And Paul's grateful for Judaism. You'll find it in many of his texts. How he celebrates many of the great traditions. But that affiliation and that experience saves nobody. It was the truth of of the gospel that was planted as seeds in my mind that eventually came to life. Now that's a different story. But my affiliations, my baptism, all those things, they're not going to help me in being right before God. That's what he's saying about religious people. Then notice he even says about non-religious people. When you get to the end of verse 16... He says, look, this is what we've done. We put our faith in Christ. And and here's why. Because not only religious people, but nobody, non-religious people, nobody will be made right or justified by observing the law. And it doesn't matter who they are. And we make ridiculous attempts to justify ourselves and therefore to claim that God ought to think that we're justified as well. I remember years ago, Doug Hickson and I were in the same fraternity. And Doug, this was after you graduated and you had gone on to much better things. But I was still there in the basement of the Phi Delta Theta building. And, uh, you know, after classes, a lot of us would just kind of wander over there. And, you know, I, I, Stuart Darling was one of my favorite classmates. He, Stuart called him Stewball because he was kind of like this. And he had thinning hair. He was getting bald, at, you know, at the age of 20. And uh, he was sober most of the time. Uh, at least during the daylight hours. And, you know, he just kind of one of those guys, you know, I, he would, I, st- I could still see him in, the, in the, the business meetings that we'd have once a month or whatever, once a quarter. He'd be sitting in the back on an old broken down couch, you know, it had three out of four legs on it and torn vinyl. You know, he'd be sitting there smoking a Marlboro and drinking a Schlitz beer. I mean, I can just see him just, you know, just kind of a slouch, you know, to be honest. I'm sure now he's CEO of some company somewhere. But... <laughs> He'll get a copy of this tape and get me fired, I'm sure. 
But I'll never, remember, I'll never forget that one business meeting we were electing officers for the next year, and this was Stuart's big year, you know. He was, he was a third yearman, going to be a fourth yearman the next year. So Stuart, to the amazement of everybody, there were kind of snickers in the room. He threw his, his name in the pot for president. Everybody <laughs> laughed. You know, then we caught ourselves. We shouldn't do that, Stuart. So what they, the, what they allowed was everybody who was running for president got to give about a, oh, I don't know, a three- to five-minute speech. And there were probably six of them. And they all gave three- to five-minute speeches as to why they ought to be elected president of the fraternity. And Stu Ball was last. So after all these speeches, they said, okay, Stu Ball, your turn. And he sat back there. He took a big draw on a cigarette with his Schlitz beer in his left hand. He said, I'll just stand on my record. <laughs> Now you know why we loved him so much. That's what human beings are doing. That's what men in this community are doing. Day after day, week after week, year after year, sitting there with a Marlboro cigarette and a Schlitz beer in their hand before God, saying, ah, no problem, I'll stand on my record. And uh, Stewball's funny, but that one's very sad because you're not dealing with fraternity and human beings. You're dealing with the living God who judges all the earth. And he is a consuming fire. And that's a big problem. If you think you're going to stand on your record. Paul makes it very clear. No one. Not the Pope. Not the superintendent of your district. Not your mother's favorite pastor 60 years ago who couldn't seem to do any wrong. Not your Sunday school teacher. Not the godliest person. Not Billy Graham. Not anybody you ever knew. Nobody can be acquitted based on their performance against the commandments of God. It's that simple. And I think he's made it that simple in this text. Now, notice, secondly, all people will only be justified through faith in Jesus Christ. But by faith in Jesus Christ, he says, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Do you see three times in Christ, in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, and the contrast of putting your faith in Christ Jesus is your observation of the law or doing works of the law. Now, this ought to make it simple, but it gets very complicated. And at this point, I told you all I was going to take out after the Catholic Church for a few minutes, and I'll do that now. But let me let me say this. Uh, having already attacked you Baptists and Oh, boy, I love the Episcopalians. They get you about every other week. Uh, but let me say this before I do that. That what makes it difficult is <clears throat> the mistakes the Protestants have made. And if you're a Protestant, and on these comments I'm going to make, you think, well, we got it right. Well, let me just give you just a few things you can work on. Uh, first of all, would you just take a look at the Protestant church? It's a mess. Splintered everywhere. Denominations everywhere. Look at the Protestant church. How it tends to gather according to ethnic groups. Not just black and white here in Memphis. I'm talking about everywhere. You got the Dutch church and the Scottish church and the French church and the this church and the that church. The Protestants have splintered according to their favorite little groups they'd like to be with. And it goes way back to the Protestant Reformation. As a matter of fact, it goes back to Luther. 
at the Council of Marburg, he had an opportunity to unite the German church and the Swiss church. And when Zwingli and Ecolopatius, the Swiss, tried to unite, they couldn't get united on the sacrament. And the Swiss said to the Germans, Luther and Melanchthon, they said to them, well, at least let's remember we're brothers. And Luther, you know what he said back? Well, obviously, you don't take your theology very seriously. And we've lived with that legacy for 450 years. And it's not right, brothers. And the Catholics know it's not right. They know something's wrong. Look at your family. It's dysfunctional. Something's fundamentally wrong. And if you look at historic theologies, systematic theologies by Protestants, until recently you'd hardly find a chapter on ecclesiology. The reason is we don't know what to say. So uh, we need to sing in a lower key. I'll give you another thing that Protestants really have have wrestled with as a result of the Reformation. Uh, One is Luther's comments about the law in the commentary on Galatians, which I appreciate very much and has been a life transformer for many people. But Luther not only throws the law out in justification, in my opinion, he makes statements that are not well guarded. He ends up throwing the law out in sanctification. He sees the law as our enemy completely. It's called anti-nominism, anti-law, and it leads to moral license. And one of the great concerns about Protestants among Roman Catholics is that we've forgotten the place of the law and that we've become antinomians and victims of sloppy agape, of free grace with no spine in it at all. So uh, we've got our own homework, but I believe there's one place, maybe one maybe two or three places that are key, but here's the formal essence of the Reformation in where I believe they got it right, where Luther got it right even, and Calvin got it right. And I believe this is one thing that maybe those of you who are Roman Catholics could take a look and see if this is something you might consider because I do believe they were were biblically correct on this. And that is this, that righteousness comes to us by what is known as imputation. That is, if you look in Romans chapter 4, you will find that Paul says, quoting Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and God credited or imputed it to him, accounted it to him like an accounting procedure, accounted it to him as righteousness. Righteousness. Abraham believed and God accounted it to him as righteousness. And what the reformers were saying, and I believe they got it right biblically here, was that our rightness is nothing more and nothing less than the rightness of Jesus Christ. And that record of rightness is simply, in a divine accounting procedure, imputed to your record. And that becomes your record. The Roman view on this, and there there are many nuances, and those of you who are Roman Catholic, please do send me your emails, and I will correct anything next week that I didn't get right today. Please do that. But I have looked at the Councils of Trent and other decrees and the uh, Catechism. I could be getting it wrong, but here's what I believe the Roman Catholic Church has been teaching, especially in the past 450 years that the, it is the righteousness of Christ. And a Roman Catholic says it is by the grace of God. 
So don't say that Roman Catholics don't believe in grace and don't say that they don't believe in faith. They do. They would say you cannot be justified without faith. In fact, a Roman Catholic will say we are justified by faith. And they will say we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of God. So don't make statements to the contrary or you're not representing your Roman Catholic friends if you're Protestant correctly. Here's where the nuance is. It is by faith, but when we believe in Jesus Christ, He not imputes, but infuses His own righteousness into our lives. Do you see the difference? The Protestant is saying is that what faith does is it calls down out of, out of heaven the right record of Christ on our behalf so that we stand, as the hymn writer said a moment ago, this uh, beautiful phrase, Jesus, to endless praise to Thee, whose boundless mercy hath for me, for me a full atonement made, an everlasting ransom paid. It's a full atonement. There's nothing to be added to it. That when I put my trust in Jesus Christ, I get the full record. I don't have to wait till tomorrow. I don't have to wait until I've been a good Christian. I don't have to wait till I go to heaven. I got the full record right now by imputation. The Roman view is that I put my faith in Christ and He begins the process of justification in my life. And that ultimately the final justification, which is true biblically, would be in, in before the throne of God. But I'm working toward that. I mean, God is infusing more grace in my life until I finally get to the point of being justified before the ultimate throne of God. So that justification, you see, from the Roman point of view, is a process. And we increase our justification. Here's the simple way to understand it. In my opinion, the Roman view of justification is the Protestant view of sanctification. Because we do believe as Protestants that the grace of God is infused into our lives and there is a righteousness infused into our lives. And that we do grow and increase in that righteousness in practical experience. And Jesus has much to say about this. And Protestants sometimes don't emphasize this as you ought. So we believe in that process. We just call it sanctification. But when it comes to justification, that is being declared acquitted before God, we are not acquitted because we become sufficiently good Christians. We are acquitted because somebody else stands in our place. And when He was on the cross, He took the curse. All of the curse. For me and for anyone who believes. And when we put our faith in Him... His righteous life is imputed to us, all of it, not part of it. So my justification is connected to my sanctification. You cannot separate these things. You must distinguish between them, but you don't separate them. And Protestants need to be clear that there is a place for the law and there is growth in grace and that we do experience increasing righteousness. But when it comes to justification which is that particular acquittal, it is a once and done deal. It is immediate. It is total. It is imputed. It is done. So that I am not only justified at the end day, but I'm justified right now. Here's how Paul put it. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Having been justified. Past tense. Been there, done that. Got it all. Having been justified, we now have peace with God, he says. Now, this, I believe, gets, gets at, at least, it's not the whole picture, but it gets at the differences that you may feel in your denominations. And, and I want to say, I think this is right in the Protestant Reformation, and it is the formal principle of the Reformation. And we got a lot, a lot of things wrong. And we need to repent. And the reformer said, we should be reforming and ever reforming. So we should, need, we, should, we should continue to reform. And let me say, if we continue to reform, if you're uh, a Protestant, you will go back and listen to your Catholic friends. We have some things to learn. We've learned a few. need to learn some more. But I would say this is something that, that I would plead with my Catholic friends to think seriously about here. So it's, uh, it's A, through faith. That means not through faith plus effort. The Roman view, I think it's fair to say, is that we're justified by faith in this sense. We, we're justified with faith, but not by faith alone. The instrumentality of justification in the Roman view is baptism. That's what initiates it. And penance continues it. In the Protestant view, it's initiated and completed through trusting in Jesus Christ. So from the Protestant view, just, or rather faith leads to justification plus works. In the Roman view, I would say that uh, faith plus works leads to justification. hope that makes sense to you. It's not through faith plus effort. It's not a synergism. It is a monergism. Secondly, it's not through intellectual assent. We don't have time to deal with this in detail. Simply to say this, faith is not just a mere intellectual agreement that the facts of the gospel are correct. The devil has that kind of faith. He believes that the facts of the gospel are correct. Faith is leaning and resting on Jesus Christ. It's really trusting Him and living for Him and dying for Him. It's giving Him your whole life. It's placing your trust in the realities that you say you believe. So it's not just intellectual assent. And notice thirdly, and this is very important, and I would say this to my Methodist friends. Once again, the Methodists get a lot of stuff right that the Presbyterians sure screwed up on. The Methodists have been really concerned about the poor for a long time, and they've been saying, where have the Presbyterians been? The Methodists have got a lot of things right. But I would plead with you to consider this. It's not because of our faith. Here's why I say it. In a classic Arminian, which is the dominant view of a Wesleyan background person, in the Arminian view of justification, what happens is, is as a result of God's righteousness, he has raised and elevated the condition of human beings so that now by your exercising your faith, you don't have to live according to the law of the Old Testament. All you have to do now, you substitute all that with just faith. So faith becomes your work. That's the danger. So you are not in, acquitted. You are not declared righteous because you believe. You are declared righteous because Christ is righteous. Your faith is mixed with doubt and fear and unbelief. You can't lean on that bruised reed. You can't lean on that, on that, that 
a weed. You can't lean on that stake, the stake of your faith. You lean on Christ. He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. He's everything. And it's your feeble faith that connects you to Him. Your faith is the instrument. It's not the cause of your justification. This is very important because sometimes men will wonder, is my faith strong enough? Gentlemen, it's not the size of your faith. It's not the purity of your faith. It's the object of your faith. And when you trust in Him with the simplest, feeblest faith, you get all of His righteousness and all of His forgiveness. And that's what compels you to lead the Christian life. That's where your works come from. Now, let's be clear about it. No one will be saved without works. Because when you are justified, you're also regenerated. You wouldn't have believed without regeneration. Therefore, your nature is changed. So the person who's being justified is not a legal fiction. It's a reality. He is justified legally, forensically before God. But he also has his nature changed. That's what Romans 6 is all about. Paul says, you're asking a stupid question. Because you're talking about people whose nature has been changed. Why would they want to go on sinning? That grace may abound. Their nature's changed. They don't want to do that anymore. So they are justified. They're also changed. And they are sanctified. And they, they bear fruits of good works. They must. If they don't, they were never justified in the first place. Because a justified person is also a regenerated person. So they were faking their justification. Now lastly, in two minutes, it's in Jesus Christ. Once again, it's not in Christ's work in me. It's Christ's work for me. Christ's work in me is my sanctification. Christ's work for me is my justification. Here's the word you want. It's an alien righteousness. Sanctification is an inherent righteousness. Justification comes to you by virtue of an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness accomplished outside of yourself that's given to you. That's the reason you can have assurance. And it's not in Christ's work through others. I'm not going to spend any time on that. But let's, let's go to the so what. First of all, justification by faith in Jesus Christ sets us free from guilt and fear. It's the only solution. If you don't believe this, you are going to continue to struggle with a guilt complex if you're thinking clearly. And if you're thinking clearly, you will be afraid that you're not going to be justified because you don't know if your justification is good enough. You don't know if you've done enough. You don't know if you have enough of God's grace. You don't know if you've been at this long enough. You should be afraid, and we are. Justification, secondly, by faith in Jesus Christ gives us the assurance of our salvation. I want to say to you, there's no other way to have assurance. This is the reason, frankly, the Roman church's church teaches that it is prideful for you to be assured of your eternal destiny because you don't know. And since it has to do with your works or Christ working through you, you're claiming that you're already going to have done something before you did it. So just be prideful for you to say, I know I've got sufficient justification to get to heaven. This is the reason the Protestant claims not to be prideful to say, it doesn't have anything to do with my works. My pride is in the cross of Christ and what He's done for me. That's the reason I know I'm going to heaven. And it's a matter of humility to say it. Because it has absolutely nothing to do with me. And that's the reason I can say I know. You get it? 
Thirdly, justification by faith in Jesus Christ exalts the grace of God. Think how gracious God is that He acquitted you before the throne of God and you did not deserve it and you never will. And you can forget merit and you can forget deserving and you can forget earning and you can begin to praise the Lord Jesus Christ and exalt His everlasting grace. He loves sinners. Fourthly, justification by faith in Jesus Christ humbles the saved sinner. Fifthly, justification by faith in Jesus Christ unites the church. Back to his point. Peter, how could you do this? How could you withdraw from one ethnic group or one religious group? How could you do this? When you have been justified by an alien righteousness, not through anything that you've done, nothing in your Judaistic practices, you were saved by simply putting your trust in the perfect work of somebody else. And you got that. And here a Gentile got it too. And you're removing yourself from them? Peter, you're denying the gospel. On the other hand, it is the very gospel which solves those problems. As that gospel, this city needs. It needs men who really believe it. And contrary to every sinful inclination in their hearts, and contrary to every bias they were ever taught, they by principle, boldly and courageously, they are determined to live by the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, which alone unites the peoples of the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the gospel. Thank You for Your love and for Your grace. And while we on the earth continue to debate and misunderstand and disagree with each other, regardless of all that, we know that You love sinners and that You will one day take us into a home that we do not deserve and we will forever sing, Jesus, Thy blood and Thy righteousness, our glorious dress. Be praised forevermore. Amen.